It's the Code St. Luke podcast, where you'll hear interesting topics and people brought together through the Code St. Luke Public Library. Here's the show. Welcome to our Tuesday afternoon discussion of current events. And I have an interesting topic uh, to discuss having to do with that. But uh, I wanted to uh, welcome all of you. And I, I actually feel that I'd like to give a recommendation for a TV series that I've been watching that I think um, you'd all love. Uh, this is a series that would be of interest, particularly for people who loved Anthony Bourdain. Do uh, you remember Anthony Bourdain, who was the uh, late um, uh, TV uh, food star of a food network show, where he went around the world and he talked to people and he discussed uh, the food and, um, and, and some of the politics and a little bit of the history of the places that he was visiting. And so uh, there's another program that's like that. And as far as food is concerned, it's kind of even, in a way, even better. And this is a show that's presented on the Izzy Network. So I-Z-Z-Y, Izzy. It's an Israeli um, uh, show network. And it's free now for, I think, three months. So you just have to um, log in and, and download this Izzy um, uh, site. And on that site, they have all kinds of movies and TV shows with um, subtitles. And this particular show is called An Incredible Journey. And the journey that they're taking is the, on the Silk Road, what was once the Silk Road, the trading route that linked China to Europe. And so these two uh, Israeli middle-aged men, one of whom is kind of a, we'll call him a kind of a stick in the mud, and his friend who knows everything and is willing to try anything and has, uh, you know, uh, has experience in the area, they take their trip, the, you know, by car and by other means of transportation, all the way from central China, ending up in Italy, discussing noodles. So the the, the question they're trying to solve is who invented noodles? Was it the Chinese or was it the Italians? And um, so if you're interested in, um, you know, the sights and sounds of markets and how different style of noodles and, and pierogies and, 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 you know, um, uh, dumplings are made, uh, this is a show for you. And it's got its funny moments too, so I, I highly recommend it. Um, okay. I'm going to start today in a kind of a bit of a roundabout way to get to my subject. So the subject I'm going to start with is not a super uh, exciting one, but it's a subject of subsidies. And uh, subsidies explains a lot how, um, how the world works and how economies work and how countries work. So a subsidy uh, means a kind of a, either a payment from a government to a um, usually a private company or a series of laws of protection that protects local industries from uh, foreign competition. So both those things are considered subsidies. Uh, right now in Canada, we're dealing with a problem of getting enough vaccine or any vaccine really from the US because the US put in a subsidy for um, American vaccine makers, whereby they pay the American vaccine makers billions of dollars up front, 
And then they said that you can't ship any vaccine out of the country before you service the whole country. So that's a kind of a subsidy. Um, so the state can support, uh, let's say, an industry uh, directly or indirectly, um, or, or producers of something directly or indirectly. Um, and it's done for all different kinds of reasons. It's done so that a country is not dependent on, outsider for, on outsiders for some key materials. So there's a kind of a strategic, uh, uh, let's call it a defense, um, uh, uh, justification for this. It's done to uh, encourage the production of certain products and therefore encourage the producers of these products to sort of replace, let's say, imports with uh, homegrown production. Um, it, um, it, it varies, you know, across the whole sort of uh, um, field of industries. So, for example, in Canada, we have the supply management of our uh, dairy products and eggs and, and um, chicken, whereby the government guarantees the um, producers a high price in exchange for limiting their production. And in order to make this whole system work, they forbid imports to compete at lower price with our dairy or chicken or eggs. And of course, we pay the highest prices, you know, uh, in North America for these things. Um, in the United States, um, they put tariffs on um, uh, uh, goods coming in from China in order to protect American industries. And then China put on counter tariffs so that, um, you know, there, there becomes a kind of a tariff war in that way. Um, uh, there are uh, subsidies to build strategic things like nuclear uh, materials or nuclear power stations. Um, in transportation, the U.S. has subsidized Boeing and airplane makers and Europe has subsidized the Airbus. Uh, they subsidize buses, trains, a subway system, shipbuilding, shipping lines. The United States has something called the Jones Act whereby if you are transporting goods by sea from one U.S. port to another, those goods have to be in a U.S. flagged ship. So that, is, of course, adds expense to that. <clears throat> Military production is often subsidized. Uh, in Israel, for example, they had a company, Israel Aircraft Industries, that was subsidized by the Israeli government, which produced all kinds of um, military technology. Um, you know, in, in education can be subsidized, whereby, uh, you know, in the U.S. they give uh, grants to public universities in exchange for accepting students who are, um, you know, uh, can't afford to pay the fees. Um, and in the in European Union, there's massive subsidies of farmers, and very often farmers are the ones most subsidized because um, uh, countries love them. And in Europe, there's a massive subsidy to farmers. There's uh, definitions of what is considered to be uh, uh, an original product. You might have heard, uh, you know, feta cheese has to come from Greece and champagne has to come from champagne in France. Uh, you know, Edam cheese has to come from Edam in Holland and 
Parmesan cheese has to come from Parma. So there's a whole bunch of these kind of rules and regulations which limit the free market and free trade of goods and services in order to protect something. Um, there could be uh, subsidies in order to encourage a growth of something that's not there, uh, like green technology. In other words, um, before uh, solar panels and wind turbines really got going, there was a huge amount of subsidy in Europe to get these, um, these products uh, in use in order to combat climate change and in order to create an industry which then would be able to grow and stand on its own two feet. Um, um, so, uh, you know, the United States uh, tried this with the solar panels and, you know, things sometimes turn out badly, you know. Electric cars is something that is subsidized in Canada, the States, around the world. So if you buy an electric car, you probably know that you can get a, uh, something like a $5,000 um, uh, rebate from the government in order to buy this electric car because the government wants to encourage the transformation of uh, gasoline-powered cars to electric cars. So, uh, I, I, you know, and like I said, sometimes a subsidy is meant to get something started and then hopefully it would go on its own. Um, and uh, that's, uh, you know, something that pretty well every government practices all around the world. Um, sometimes these things turn out well and sometimes they don't. Sometimes they turn out to be huge wastes of money. Sometimes they turn out to be white elephants. Um, you know, the government subsidizing something that really has no chance of taking off on its own. Um, the uh, Concorde uh, airplane would be one good example of that. You remember this plane that was able to go from Paris to New York in, uh, I think, under three and a half hours uh, at supersonic speeds. And the government shoveled tons of money into this project, but in the end, of course, it couldn't stand on its own two feet. Nobody bought the tickets uh, at the prices they were charging, and so the Concorde was retired. Um, 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 sometimes the government has to subsidize things that take a very long time to complete, so that, um, like in the example of a nuclear power station, it might take 25 years to build it, or one of those big power generating dams. Um, and uh, the government either has to shove in all the money at the beginning or guarantee loans or something like that. But all of this is considered a subsidy because it wouldn't have happened without the government support. So that's the kind of, you know, sort of a hallmark of a subsidy that uh, it wouldn't happen without the government support. Um, we have an example in Canada of that, the uh, hydroelectric power project in Labrador called Muskrat Falls. Um, it was started in 2006. Uh, it went 70% over budget. And in 2021, so this year, they're going to generate their first kilowatt hour of power from this 15-year boondoggle, we'll call it. Um, you know, in China, they built... Uh, thousands of kilometers of high-speed rail, but as of now, they're, you know, grossly underused a lot of the lines. So, um, you know, that's part of the reason for subsidies. 
other other reasons are to kind of um, let's say help out poorer areas of the country. So um, you know, for example, in the United States, they built the Tennessee Valley Authority, this sort of uh, power grid in the middle of Appalachia in the 1930s in order to um, help the economy there uh, to take off. Um, sometimes subsidies are politically important. So for example, in Egypt, um, bread, the, the most common food that people eat in Egypt is bread. And the government was subsidizing bread uh, tremendously. In other words, uh, the government imported the grain, paid the world price for the grain, but then they sold it to the bakeries for much less money. And the bakeries were then able to sell the bread to the people for much less money. Of course, what happens when, when, when this style of anti-market behavior occurs is that people will take advantage of it. So that, for example, in Egypt, um, instead of farmers feeding their um, animals or chickens, let's say, uh, chicken feed, they fed them bread because the bread was so cheap that it was the cheapest food they could possibly buy. And so they bought loads and loads of bread, uh, y you know, because the prices were so low and they just fed their animals with the bread. In, um, in uh, Venezuela, for example, and in the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia, the price of uh, gasoline is tremendously subsidized. And so the, the logic is that since these countries are producing so much oil, the, the residents of the country should benefit from this production and pay a very low price for gasoline. Uh, needless to say, not so much maybe in Saudi Arabia, but in Venezuela, um, you know, a country which is on its knees economically, uh, the uh, subsidized gasoline was so much cheaper in Venezuela than in next door Colombia or next door Brazil that hundreds of thousands of people made a living carrying by, by carrying on, on, on their backs containers of gasoline over the border in the jungle and selling it for, you know, less than the market price in Colombia or in uh, Venezuela. So what in, in essence, what was happening is that the Venezuelan government was subsidizing the smugglers and subsidizing the consumers in neighboring countries who were buying their own gasoline for a cheaper price. Um, when uh, a country runs out of money, the first thing they think about is to stop the subsidies because they are artificial in any sense. Um, uh, who benefits from subsidies are the people who uh, are using that or buying that particular item. But who loses from a, a program of subsidies? It's a lot harder to put your finger on the losers. On the one hand, it's the consumers who have to pay more for the product which is being um, uh, un, un, uh, propped up, whose price is being propped up so that for example, all Canadians are paying more for uh, dairy products, eggs, and cheese. Um, but all Canadians are, 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 you know, paying, let's say, it's only a small amount in their total budget. And so people don't even notice it. They may not even know that the world price of these products is much less than they're paying. And uh, because 
lots of consumers who suffer very little are, are less important than uh, thousands of producers who would suffer a lot. Uh, their votes and their support is what sort of, um, you know, motivates the government. So that's one area. Where the government subsidizes and pays money, so, you know, the supply management system is, is not paid for by the government. But where the government actually pays money, pays producers uh, to produce something, um, it's the taxpayers of the country who pay for it because if the government wasn't doing this, then the taxpayers wouldn't be paying the money. But again, if a taxpayer is paying, each taxpayer is paying 50 or $100 more a year, the taxpayers don't even realize that they're being kind of so-called overcharged for uh, a subsidy. And, um, you know, it's easier to extract a little bit of money from a lot of people than to uh, lay off uh, and kind of destroy the lives of a sort of a protected industry. So that's in a certain sort of a nutshell way of explaining um, uh, uh, what a subsidy is. Um, um, uh, and uh, very often, uh, governments will end subsidies not of their own free will, but when a government goes broke, like for example, the Egyptian government, or maybe the Venezuelan government, and they go to the World Bank for a loan, the World Bank is very much against these protective or protectionistic subsidies and very much in favor of free trade. And so they will tell the government, look, if you have to drop the subsidies on condition that you get a loan, and then the, the country can decide what it wants to do. Um, because the loans are given at favorable rates, the government uh, in most cases can't borrow on the free market because they're not credit worthy enough. Uh, so if they want to borrow money from the World Bank or another international financial institution, they have to eliminate or cut their subsidies. And the World Bank says that we're doing this for your own good. It doesn't do the World Bank any good to cut subsidies, but it does a country good for cutting subsidies because it um, it kind of uh, equalizes out the market and levels out the market and it creates economic incentives where they're supposed to go. Um, sometimes, sometimes um, ending subsidies uh, is actually a good thing uh, for a specific sector. So I'll give the example in Australia and New Zealand, which had a very similar um, dairy subsidy to Canada. And then the government decided to cut out these uh, protections. And what happened was, is that these sort of weaker, less efficient farmers went out of business and the more efficient ones grew bigger and ended up producing way more dairy products than they were before. And they began to export them. So obviously Canada doesn't export hardly any dairy products because you know, we're in a non-competitive field. Um, why buy expensive um, dairy products from Canada when you can buy them much cheaper from France or from Holland or from the US? And then it's not allowed, you're not allowed to sell a product cheaper abroad than you're charging at home. That's completely against the rules. So um, therefore Canada hardly exports any dairy products, you know, ex except for maybe some very special cheeses that come from Quebec. Um, 
And uh, as I was saying, um, you know, the, the vaccine uh, production system has really uh, put us in disfavor because we can't compete equally with either the European Union, who is now restricting exports of vaccine even to Great Britain, or the United States, who's restricting exports of vaccine to Canada. So all of this that I've been speaking about is an introduction. Uh, it's an introduction to what my real topic is of today, which is the, um, the um, ongoing demonstrations in India over the um, uh, wish of the government to eliminate subsidies for Indian farmers. So I, what I'm gonna do is speak a little bit about this subject and then talk about India in general, just to give you an idea of what an amazing, wonderful country it is. I visited it um, you know, for three weeks uh, recently. And uh, for those of you who are travelers who are a little bit uh, tough, we'll say, and a little bit used to um, non-Western standards, uh, it's, it's, an, uh, it's a world of its own. So let's get on to where all of these demonstrations come from and why are they occurring now. So um, India, um, in the 19, in India became independent in 1948. Uh, um, the parallel to Israel is quite strong because both were countries were run by Great Britain for uh, a long time, and both became independent at the same time. And both governments who took over at the same time had a kind of a, we'll call it a socialistic, nationalistic uh, bent. Um, uh, they were both kind of in the Labour Party tradition, we'll call it, the Labour Party of Great Britain, the Labour Party of Israel, and in, the, in, in India was called the Congress Party. And uh, India had, had experienced a series of famines uh, even into the, in the 20th century. So in the 1920s and 30s, there were great famines that um, occurred in the country. Uh, India was an extremely um, underdeveloped country in a poor country. And farmers were the vast majority of the population uh, using very little technology, very little machinery, very little um, modern uh, techniques. And if the rains failed, um, then the crops failed, and then the people starved. So in order to prevent this from happening again, the state decided to subsidize the production of food, uh, especially uh, the two most important crops, for India, rice and wheat. And what they said was that we will buy, we the state will buy rice and wheat from Indian farmers at a fixed price. At a price which will guarantee that these farmers will be able to make a decent living. Um, and at the same time, India will then store all of these products uh, in case of need, in case of uh, you know, a recurring famine. And um, uh, so the farmers did that. The same policy was carried out in Thailand uh, and is carried out to this very day, where rice farming is the main agricultural product in Thailand. The state buys mountains of rice from the Thai farmers and stores it and then uh, tries to figure out what to do with it. Um, <clears throat> 
Now, in the 1960s, starting in the 1960s, something called the Green Revolution happened, uh, which actually started in India. And the Green Revolution was a way, a scientific way of growing crops so that you got much more yield from the same size of land. Uh, it was called the Green Revolution because by using scientific methods of agriculture, which included more fertilizers, which included um, pesticides, which included uh, um, uh, ways of planting crops, uh, ways of weeding crops, uh, distances between rows, um, using shade, all kinds of different scientific methods applied to agriculture. It increased production um, in India four times over. So you could get maybe four times the amount of crops from the same amount of land. Obviously, this resulted in farmers growing four times as much and the Indian state buying four times as much uh, grain as they did before. So obviously, there was never a famine since then. Um, um, and uh, it was the end of starvation in India. Uh, Uh, you know, uh, as a sidelight, I, you know, some of you who are in my age category, uh, you might remember your mums uh, when you were kind of a fussy eater. You were sitting down, and they say, "Come on, come on, finish your finish your dinner." You know, children are starving in India. I don't know if you ever remember that line, but I I do, um, and it was true in those days. Um, but not anymore. Uh, there is no starvation, neither in India nor in China. But by the way, there is malnutrition. And the malnutrition comes from not having a balanced diet. So there's enough to eat, especially of rice and uh, wheat products, but not enough vitamins, not enough uh, protein. And uh, there are, um, you know, children who are suffering because of this uh, which is kind of easily treated by, you know, by uh, different changes in nutrition. But uh, sometimes it's very hard to reach the farthest corners of these countries. On the other hand, India has become a huge rice exporter. So all that extra rice that's hanging around, and Thailand also, of course, if you ever go into, um, you know, an Asian grocery store in Montreal, or anywhere else around the world, you'll see sacks and sacks of rice that are product of India for basmati rice and product of, uh, of Thailand for long grain rice. And it's obvious that, um, you know, if people needed that rice back home, uh, they would get it first. So uh, this kind of uh, explosion of production has led to exports uh, around the world of rice from these rice producing countries. The, um, the World Bank says that uh, using this system of subsidies is inefficient. So what happens is, is that the um, farmers who are the um, wealthiest with the largest pieces of land are able to produce the most. They sell the most to the government 
and they get most of the rewards that the government gives for subsidizing the products that they make. Um, in the United States, uh, after China put uh, tariffs on U.S. agricultural products in retaliation for uh, Trump's tariffs on Chinese goods, uh, China stopped buying American grain products, especially soybeans and corn, uh, whose prices fell. They're now, by the way, back up, but at the time they fell. And the United States promised to pay farmers for their losses, which, of course, they never did. But they did pay something. But 80% of the subsidies paid under Trump went to 10% of the farmers. And, um, you know, that's kind of typical. So um, the World Bank says, you know, it's much better if you want to help people to pay the money directly into their bank accounts rather than to create some sort of an artificial construct whereby you pay them for something and by paying them more money than the thing is worth, they just will grow more of it and, and, and the government will end up paying and paying and, and they can't stop this sort of uh, the train once it gets going. And uh, so this is what the recommendation of the World Bank is. Um, now, in the uh, third world countries and places like India, where farmers are a huge uh, proportion of the population, they're also a big voting bloc in democracies. And so uh, the government um, will pay subsidies not just to um, accumulate a storage against famine, but to reward or encourage farmers to vote for their party. Uh, clearly, this is part of the motivation in many governments who subsidize wild, widely like that. And it was a motivation of uh, President Trump also for uh, his voters in the Midwest uh, who could have blamed him for their huge losses uh, once China put tariffs on U.S. products. Um, so, you know, political reasoning and political uh, sort of, uh, you know, pros and cons are definitely a part of it. Uh, you might know or you might not know that in the United States, there is an, a huge subsidy for sugar production. Now, you would say to yourself, why in the heck would the United States subsidize sugar production when uh, sugar is such a cheap product that has grown so efficiently in places where labor is cheap, uh, places like the Dominican Republic, for example, um, places like Brazil, for example. Um, you know, sugar production even today does require a certain amount of hand labor. And uh, for the United States to be growing such a cheap product seems ridiculous. And yet, and yet, the United States subsidizes eight families who grow sugar on vast, vast acreages in southern Florida uh, by Lake Okeechobee near the Everglades. Uh, I've been to their factories. The factory looks like something out of, out of uh, Charles Dickens. Huge smokestacks, steaming, huge carts of sugar uh, cane uh, being unloaded by black workers. Um, I mean, it's 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 like a scene out of 
I don't know what you would call it, a scene out of um, some uh, industrial uh, apocalypse. This amount of smoke that's coming out of those factories. But these, these um, sugar kings, we'll call them, uh, are huge contributors to the Republican Party uh, and huge uh, supporters of the county um, politicians. So uh, they've got their way up until now. And they've been able to not only get subsidies to prevent sugar from coming into the states at low prices, but they've been able to uh, divert and to pollute the um, waters running uh, into the Everglades. So it just goes to show that sometimes you don't have to have a lot of people to subsidize, but you could have, you could, you could have powerful, powerful people that ask for and get subsidies in exchange for something else. Um, and that's the case of the United States sugar production. Um, now, uh, what India decided to do uh, is that um, India decided to um, reduce subsidies paid to farmers. They decided to reduce the guaranteed prices that they would be offering farmers for their products. They said that farmers would no longer be forced to sell to a government wholesaler, but they could sell to anybody they wanted, and they could ask whatever price they wanted. In practical terms, small farmers felt that this would be uh, to their great detriment, that the wholesalers would be able to fix a price that would be lower than the government is paying them, and therefore the farmers would lose out. For that reason, uh, farmers from the key um, wheat and rice growing areas of India uh, commercial growers, in other words, these are not farmers who produce just for themselves. These are farmers who are commercial farmers, uh, and they come from two states in India, the state of Punjab and the state of Haryana. Uh, both of these states are located to the um, uh, northwest of New Delhi, but not that far from New Delhi. Uh, they decided to arrive in New Delhi, the capital, in their tractors to um, you know, take up public spaces uh, to put up signs uh, to demonstrate and to ask for a cancellation of the whole uh, elimination of the subsidy program. Um, now, the farmers that are, are there in, 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 in New Delhi demonstrating are not the poorest farmers in India by a long shot. Uh, the poorest farmers in India are the ones who are... Uh, uh, subsistence farmers. In other words, they will grow just enough for their own needs of their family and have a little bit to sell afterwards on very small acreage. Uh, many of the farmers who are there in New Delhi are medium-sized farmers uh, who uh, grow their products for a living and sell them. So uh, they're not growing, you know, just for their own households. They're growing it as a kind of a, you know, as commercial farmers. Um, the, um, um, the government claims that by allowing farmers to sell to anybody, they could in a sense get a better price for their goods because 
they can decide to withhold their um, crops until prices go up. Uh, just the way farmers in the U.S. do and just the way farmers in Canada do. So, you know, you, you will see farms all across Canada and the U.S. with huge grain silos. Those grain silos are a sort of a form of, we'll call it, I won't call it hoarding, but we'll call it a market mitigation system whereby they will hold their grain in their own silos to a point where uh, they feel the prices are high enough and then they'll go and have their grain uh, picked up by truck or they'll truck it themselves over to a wholesale, um, um, you know, uh, a wholesale collector uh, who, where it then gets shipped, you know, by rail all across Canada or all across the States. So um, this is what, this is the model that the Indian government was looking at. And they did it sort of in a way, not really to help the farmers, but uh, to reduce the government expense, to reduce the government's surplus of these grains at a time of COVID, at a time when the economies are slowing down all around the world and the government needs the money, uh, you know, to provide services to the people and not to buy grain and store it in storehouses where, you know, there isn't even enough room and they have to build new storehouses. Um, the result of this uh, policy in India would be, as you could probably figure out, that the stronger farmers, the bigger farmers, are the ones who benefit most because they could afford to hold back some or all of their crop and wait for prices to go up. The smaller farmers who need the money for day-to-day -day living are the ones who have to sort of accept whatever price a wholesaler, a wholesaler gives them. And uh, if there's no competition between wholesalers, then they will have to accept the lowest price uh, that a wholesaler is willing to offer. And so uh, under this system then, um, you know, the small farmers or the more efficient farmers will be, will be uh, forced out of business. And, you know, you know, that's what life is like and that's what business is. And their farms would be bought up by other people who will then uh, make a more efficient farm. But uh, in India, like in many places, people's families and their roots and their souls uh, are tied to a specific plot of land, which they may have been uh, in their families for generations that they would not want to give up. And so this ending of the subsidy is not just an economic loss, but if it forces people to leave their farms, it's like they're losing their whole lives and the only lives they've ever known. Um, and it might force them to migrate to cities where they have no connections, no education, no possibilities, and you know their lives will be uh, turning for the much worse. And that's why there is so much um, uh, heat over this particular um, uh, program that India has decided on. So besides the economic reasons, which is the fundamental one, why did the government of Mr. Modi decide to do it now? And for that, there's a political reason. And the political reason is that Mr. Modi's government is so strong um, that he doesn't really need any particular group of people's votes to keep him in power. Uh, he has an absolute majority in parliament. He is, his party is the only strong national party. 
and he doesn't need any particular voter um, or any particular voter's support to uh, keep himself in power. Uh, he's by far and away the most popular politician in India. And um, he's telling these people, look, I, I'm doing this for the greater good of the country. Uh, in the long run, it might help you also, but he's not that concerned with that. And he's not concerned with losing their votes because he's got so many of them from other places that um, he doesn't need them. In the case of the Punjab in particular, uh, you might have noticed in the demonstrations that there are a lot of Sikhs in the, among the farmers. So, so Sikhs are a religion in India where the men wear turbans. And uh, there were a lot of them there. And uh, of course, in, in that particular province, uh, Mr. Modi's support is not that strong anyway, uh, because the Sikhs tend to vote for a sort of a Sikh-only party. Um, and uh, so this is an additional political reason for him to go ahead and, um, you know, try this, um, this policy. It's a policy which in general is supported by economists, by professors, by people who sit in their offices with pens and, and, and typewriters, or not typewriters, pens and computers, but you know, these policies translate down to day-to-day -day life in the countryside and they can mean a whole lot of difference to um, millions of people. Um, so I'm gonna stop over here and now I'm going to talk a little bit. Let me just, I wanna just check my time here, okay. I'm gonna talk a little bit about India itself, the history of India. We're gonna get off, the, off now off of the subject of the, um, of the subsidies just to teach you or to talk a little bit about India as a whole. Um, India is the um, first or second largest country in the world by population today, 1.4 billion people. So the whole world has somewhere around seven and a half billion and India alone has 1.4 billion. So it just gives you an idea how uh, and China, by the way, is another 1.3 or 1.4 billion. So the two countries in population are almost the same. Hard to know now who's bigger. Uh, it's also the seventh, India is the seventh largest in area in the world. So it's not only uh, the biggest in population, but it's one of the biggest in land. And it's a country which has uh, an entire world inside of it, somewhat as China does. So. In India, you've got glaciers, you've got mountains, the Himalayas, you've got deserts, you've got jungles, uh, you have beaches, you have enormous cities like Mumbai with 20 million people, and you have tiny little villages where electricity is, uh, hasn't even arrived yet. Uh, you've got millions of people living without uh, indoor plumbing, without indoor toilets on the one hand, and of course, on the other hand, you have the most luxurious, uh, some of the world's wealthiest people uh, live in uh, India in skyscrapers. And um, it's, a, it's a contrast definitely uh, of, of many different worlds all mixed together. What makes India so special is that it's the world's largest democracy. So unlike China, uh, which isn't one, India has since, um, practically since it was founded, has been a democracy. It's a, it has a secular constitution, uh, although uh, the current prime minister is not really a secularist, but India was founded as a secular country. It's a multi-religious country. It's a multi 
ethnic country. Um, it's a multilinguistic country. There are 447 different languages spoken in India, although you know uh, some of them are much more spoken than other ones. Um, it, it's a world in and of itself. It's also probably the longest continuing unbroken uh, country of civilization. So in other words, um, uh, somewhere well, uh, well over, um, uh, let's say, uh, at least uh, around 2000 uh, BC, the beginnings of the Indian civilization took root. And uh, India has been continuously um, going with the same, uh, with the same um, uh, sort of uh, the same style or the same philosophy or the same kind of religious outlook as today. So the Hindu religion or Hinduism is probably the world's oldest continually going religion. Um, the writings that that the Vedas, which are the writings, the Bhagavad Gita, uh, the writings which inspired Hinduism, are far older than the uh, Hebrew Bible. Um, uh, it's uh, a country which today uh, is not rich, unlike China, which would be a middle country. Um, if we if we use today's prices. The average Indian is making about $6,000 a year in purchasing power. So $6,000 a year is not the, is, is, you know, no great shakes. It's about the 124th poorest country in the world out of 200 countries. Um, but it's been growing fast. The last 20 years have been good years. Um, India is the source of the Buddhist religion. So Buddha himself, his name was Gautama Buddha. He lived uh, around 400 BC, and he founded this philosophy, which ironically um, was a way to, uh, in, for individual people to look at the world and to look at themselves and to uh, establish a series of principles. But oddly enough, his teachings never took on and never took over in India. They weren't able to penetrate the long lasting Hindu religion with its caste system. Uh, that caste system, by the way, was also established uh, thousands of years ago. It's not any kind of recent invention. But Buddhism spread from India in the north through Nepal into China and from China to Korea and Korea to Japan. And in the south, it went to Sri Lanka and from Sri Lanka over to um, uh, Myanmar, Cambodia, uh, Thailand uh, and Vietnam. Uh, and so, uh, you know, ironically enough, uh, somewhat in the way of Jesus coming from uh, Israel, uh, his religion never caught on in the home country, but, it, you know, spread halfway around the world from there. Um, somewhere in the 12-1300s, the Muslims from uh, Afghanistan region invaded India, North India, and in 300 years, they took over almost the entire peninsula of India, and not quite getting to the very bottom of it, but almost to the bottom. And they ruled India until the British and other uh, colonial powers uh, started to make inroads. And uh, these colonial powers were the Dutch and the Portuguese who came 
the first ones uh, in the uh, 1600s, 1600s, 1600s. Uh, and the 1700s, the British and French came and they all established trading ports. So the idea was these countries didn't want to colonize India. They didn't want to bring their own people to India, but they wanted to trade with India. And what did India have to trade that they wanted? Uh, well, for the most part, it was cotton, uh, opium, uh, spices, silk. Uh, these products were highly prized in Europe, uh, not grown in Europe, and um, you know were extremely valuable. And so trading ports were established by these different colonial powers in different parts of India. Um, and they, these ports served as kind of jumping off points for uh, later uh, control uh, of the interior by some of these uh, colonial powers. Um, there was a war, which any of you remember your history between France and Britain in 17, from 1757 to 1763. Uh, this war was called the Seven Years' War. It was, we, we remember it because it was where Britain captured Quebec. Britain captured Quebec City in 1759 and captured Montreal in 1760. But this war was also fought in India between French and uh, British forces. It was also fought in the West Indies and the Caribbean. So, and it was fought in Europe. So this was really a world war. And uh, the, the war kind of resulted in a great British victory and the French were basically eliminated from India, not 100%, but pretty well uh, eliminated from India. And the British gradually took over India um, uh, from then on. Uh, the British, what's so interesting about India is that India had um, a long history of kings, rajas, um, local, uh, uh, lo local royalty in different places, sometimes hundreds of small little kingdoms, sometimes one or two very large ones. And the British left this system in place. So what they did is they went to the local king and they said, look, you can stay in charge of your own territory. You, you have to recognize that we control the whole um, country. You cannot sort of go off on your own and have a foreign policy or start a war with a neighboring kingdom. Uh, you have to pay a certain amount of tax to us uh, and you can keep your, uh, your system as it is. So that was for parts of India. For other parts of India, Britain, Britain took over directly. So there was indirect rule and direct rule. Uh, this model, by the way, the Britain used in Africa too, in Nigeria, but India was one of the places that it really uh, came to fruition. At first, it was the British East India Company, which ran affairs for Great Britain. So this was the trading company that I alluded to earlier. So they not only bought goods from India, the ones that I was mentioning before, which also, by the way, included timber, teak, um, you know, other precious woods, uh, precious gems, uh, but they also sold goods to India. And what they sold to India were manufactured goods. So these could be um, cloth, uh, material, clothes, 
um, uh, could be um, uh, mach machinery, or could be uh, hardware, uh, tools, uh, any kind of manufactured goods. India, you know, being uh, even at that time five times larger than Great Britain, was a huge pool of shoppers to buy British industrial goods. And um, so that's how it went. Raw materials came to Great Britain from India and manufactured goods went back. So it was a very profitable kind of arrangement for Great Britain. What made it even more profitable is that they didn't require a lot of uh, men uh, to do the administration of India. Uh, they didn't have a huge army going to India. They didn't have a huge platoon of civil servants going to India. There were some, but not a large number. Uh, because India's sort of economy, uh, sorry, because India's climate and, and, and the sort of um, life in the country was so foreign to the British, they never thought of it as a place to send colonists like they sent to um, America or to Canada or even to some places in the West Indies. So there were almost no British people who went to live in India and make it their lives the way they went to Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, Canada, and the US. Um, but with maybe 10,000 people, uh, Great Britain ran this, a continent really, because that's what India is, this continent of hundreds of millions of people. And remember too that India in those days wasn't the India of today. Uh, the India of those days included what we would call today Pakistan, Bangladesh, and even uh, Myanmar, Burma. So all of this, was um, you know part of the British Empire. And it was the most important part of the British Empire. It was where the money came from to run the rest of the British Empire. That's how important it was. Um, the British brought uh, railways, uh, you know, telecommunications, uh, schools, uh, etc. in their in, in Britain, in, in India. Um, but, uh, you know, there were people who didn't like the British rule. There was one rebellion in 1857, which resulted in uh, the end of the British East India Company and the establishment of Britain itself as the ruler of India. Um, and before long, in 1885, um, a kind of a local Indian movement for self-rule got established and was called the Indian National Congress. And what they wanted was elections to parliament on the same basis as uh, the other colonies in those days, like Australia or like Canada or South Africa. Uh, they wanted the same model to apply to, to India. Uh, in World War I, millions of Indians served in the army. There was a massacre uh, in, uh, of, of Indians in um, by the British army in 1917, who were rebelling in Amritsar. Um, the, um, you know, post-war period led to more reforms, more demand for independence. And uh, uh, once World War II happened, uh, of course, uh, uh, again, the Indians fought on the side of the British uh, against the Japanese. Um, and uh, Britain was exhausted at the end of the Second World War. So the story is you know, familiar. And they gave uh, independence to, uh, among other places, in Palestine um, and in India 
uh, and in uh, Burma and in Sri Lanka, Ceylon. So all these places became independent after the, um, after the end of the Second World War. What's so unique about India was that the Indian independence movement had two different streams going at the same time. So um, uh, the vast majority of Indians supported uh, an Indian uh, country that would be led as a sort of a secular country by an elected parliament. Um, but as is uh, not unusual in colonial rule, when the British or other colonialists were in charge of a country, they promoted minorities to serve them because they knew the minorities would be more loyal to their rule. In the case of India, the British promoted Muslims as a loyal minority. And when India was going to become independent, the Muslims, of course, were afraid that they would be uh, overruled uh, by the more numerous Hindus. And so a demand became uh, strong for India to be partitioned into two countries, uh, a sort of Indian secular Hindu uh, majority country on the one hand, and a Muslim country on the other hand. Um, now Muslims in India at the time were somewhere close to 30% of the population. They lived in a concentrated way in what we would call today Pakistan and Bangladesh. But besides those places, they lived pretty well all over the country. Um, and um, most, but not all Muslims wanted this partition. Uh, and in general, the Indian population, including the leadership, which would have been uh, Mohandas Gandhi and Mr. Nehru, they did not want a partition plan. However, under uh, British, um, under British um, uh, supervision, uh, they agreed to the partition plan as a condition to, to give independence to the, the, this territory. And it was British people who made the dividing line between the two states. And that resulted in millions of people moving from one to another. So Muslims in India moved to Pakistan uh, and Bangladesh, and Hindus in, in, in what is today Bangladesh moved to India, and Hindus and Sikhs in what is today Pakistan moved also to India. There were massacres along the way. There are some famous pictures of trains with, with hundreds of dead people in them. Uh, it was a horrible time. And in a certain sense, especially in Pakistan, the echoes of that migration are still being felt to this very day. Um, so it, it ended up that um, Pakistan uh, had almost no, uh, almost no Hindus or Sikhs left in the whole country. Uh, in, uh, Bang in Bengal, uh, which was a huge province, which was both Muslim and Hindu, uh, Calcutta is the largest city in Bengal, um, uh, the country was divided into what's called West Pakistan, meaning today's Pakistan, and East Pakistan, uh, which is today's Bangladesh. And these two countries were thousands of miles away from each other. 
So in other words, it was uh, kind of a very impractical in a certain way solution. Uh, the two country, the two, the two parts of Pakistan had roughly equal populations, but the political leadership resided in West Pakistan. The capital was in West Pakistan. And, um, you know, uh, kind of this arrangement lasted roughly from 1948 to 1970 when um, uh, the politicians in East Pakistan won an election. And uh, this was not recognized by the elite in West Pakistan. And therefore, the Bengal portion split off, uh, supported by India, split off from uh Pakistan and became a separate independent country today called Bangladesh, uh, which is still going. And, um, you know, that uh, uh, echoes of that little civil war, by the way, are still being felt. And there's some, you know, trials are still going on to this day about uh, what happened uh, in those days. That's a side, side issue. So India became a par partition. India was established as a secular federal state. So there were provinces in India that were um, created. They had, it was always a democracy. The provinces had their own capital cities, their own language recognitions, their own legislatures. And the federal government uh, established in New Delhi as the uh, leader of the whole country. Uh, they used a parliamentary system like in Great Britain for their elections. Uh, what, what became, for example, of the kings uh, and rajas of those princely states? Uh, a very interesting question. Let me just check my time. Well, we have to finish. But what India said is that these princes can no longer be princes in their territories. They had to give up all of their lands, uh, but they could live in their own palaces until, you know, the end of their lives. Um, in some cases, uh, things got complicated because the princes wanted to decide where their territory would belong to, India or Pakistan. So uh, Kashmir is a Muslim-majority province, but was ruled by a Hindu king, and he voted to put the Kashmir in India. At the same time, in another way, in central India, there was another huge uh, state, uh, called Hyderabad, uh, which was Muslim ruled with a Hindu majority, and he wanted his state to become part of Pakistan, but of course, it was nowhere near the rest of Pakistan, so that was ruled up. My time is running out here, so we're not going to talk about Kashmir or anything else like that. I just want to mention that um, India is today 80% Hindu and 15% Muslim. It has the largest Muslim population in the world of any non-Muslim majority country. Uh, India became very industrialized and leading the world in certain fields like pharmaceuticals and IT um, and, uh, and uh, things like that. Um, and that um, it is today ruled by a kind of a nationalist uh, Hindu style ruler on the model, I would call it, of Netanyahu or the model of Trump, uh, where um, uh, you know nationalism is key, uh, where uh, respect for minorities is nothing, where manipulation of elections is tried all the time, um, where discrimination against Muslims is kind of the the his headline grabber. We'll call it like that. 
There's a huge middle class today that's grown up in India. At the same time, of course, there's millions of immigrants who left India and who send money back to uh, the country. India and China have been uh, kind of uh, having some military tensions over their border. And India has fought three wars against Pakistan over the issue of Kashmir. Um, so uh, just a bit of a uh, uh, kind of a brushing stroke about India. Also to let you know that North India and South India see themselves quite differently. So North India uh, is a region that three quarters of the country is dominated by sort of Hindu, Hindustani or the, the Hindi language uh, and uh, languages related to Hindi and Hindi is the official language of India. But in South India, the languages that they speak there are completely different from Hindi uh, and uh, the people there don't recognize Hindi as, as their language and they use English as their uh, sort of a trade language or common language. Uh, you see English all over India, uh, <clears throat> even though the Indian government wanted for nationalistic reasons to get rid of English, but then they realized that it's a world language and it's a common language that unites all of India. So they kept it going as, um, as an official language. So uh, let me check my time. Okay, time is up. Time for questions and comments, and thank you so much for listening. And um, let me know uh, if you've been there. You know, I visited South India, had a wonderful time. It's just a just a, an amazing country to visit. There's a comment that says, "Thank you very much." Okay. Uh, well, thank you so much for listening. I really do appreciate it, and. And, and I'll, I'll repeat again and again that as a teacher, it's so hard for me uh, to teach uh, a class without seeing the people in it. So, um, you know, I don't know. It's hard for me to see uh, reactions and, you know, it's hard for, hard for me to, um, to get you to speak and ask questions because I'm not, I'm not looking at you. And the same thing, and, you know. You just see my little head. So we have a question, rest. Mr. Dwaskin. Yeah. Mm -hmm. From Go an ahead. anonymous attendee, uh, the person says, spent three, three marvelous weeks in India. Fascinating. Great and very hot food. Friendly people and cows everywhere. Getting more respect than all. That's true, too. I mean, I saw cows everywhere. You know, cows are a holy animal for Hindus. Uh, and they treat them with such great respect. And, um, you know, even in cities, it's in the middle of a city, they've got cows walking around and they have sort of, I would call them like mini stables where people will keep them um, and feed them. And the owners of the cows milk them. You know, milk is, milk is probably, you know, besides wheat and rice, milk is probably the most important food that Indians eat. Um, milk and milk products um, uh, and because there's so many cows there's so much milk everywhere but it is hot I mean most of it is hot 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 and hot that's for sure true and India of course is a country which is affected by climate change uh, you might have heard about this collapsing dam in uh, northern India that just happened this past week where a glacier sort of tumbled down a ravine. It took out a dam 
and um, you know killed uh, I think 26 people up at this point. Um, the glaciers which are up in the Himalayas are melting very fast, and um, you know they're the source of water for not millions of people but hundreds of millions of people in Afghanistan. Um, I should say in uh, uh, you know Myanmar, uh, everywhere, Cambodia, India, Pakistan, everywhere. The name, by the way, India is related to the Indus River, which is the river which is flowing again, starting in the Himalayas, and it goes down through um, through Pakistan today, um, and uh, you know that's the source of the name India. It's an old name. The Greeks and Romans both used it to describe that country. I see another question. Yeah. Uh, there's a question by the coming center and the question is, what cities did you visit in India and did you have any digestive problems? Oh, uh, well, we started in Chennai, which is the capital of the Tamil Nadu state, uh, one of India's biggest cities. And then we went south and just followed the coastline all the way around the bottom of India, which is like a kind of a triangle. And uh, it was my wife who really wanted to visit India. And I said, you know, my condition is if you, we visit India, we have to just go to the south because the south is less hot, less poor, less dirty, and, um, you know, kind of a bit more comfortable. And uh, one place we visited was this kind of world um, meditation center, we'll call it, that the French, a French person set up in what used to be the French colony in India called Pondicherry, uh, and it's called Oroville. And it, Oroville was, tended, was intended to be a kind of a worldwide kibbutz, we'll call it. And um, uh, they built a big meditation center there for members. Members could come and work and uh, be creative and do arts and crafts and all kinds of things like that and sell the products to tourists. They've got people from all around the world living there today. The, the, the person who planned it thought maybe 50,000 people would come live there, but only about 2,000 are living there now. Um, they provide a lot of work to local Indian, uh, you know, uh, tradespeople and Indian people who live all around them. And it, it, it's a kind of a funky community that is not very well known but, um, you know, is known to the people who are in that particular community. So we did visit that place. Um, and we also visited uh, Cochin, which was the, one of the Jewish centers in the olden days of India, and saw the synagogue and um, the so-called Jew town, which is the Jewish quarter and the old cemetery. Uh, the people are pretty well all gone from there now. India today has a small Jewish community, mostly south, centered around uh, Mumbai, which is Bombay, the old name for Bombay, but not a lot of people, maybe 20,000 uh, out of a community that at one time was well over 150,000, uh, including some very important uh, um, people in Indian society, the, the Indian film actresses, singers, and one of the heads of the military in India was a Jewish person. Um, uh, we visited uh, a tiger sanctuary. I went for a hike uh, in the middle of the night, kind of uh, in a forest uh, with guides who had a shotgun with them. Um, 
we visited canals and boathouses and um, you know many temples and uh, you know bazaars and all kinds of things like that. They have stores that sell gold that are like bigger than uh, bigger than the bank. You can imagine, you know, four or five stories of of a, a store selling gold, like rings on one level, and then necklaces on another level, and jewelry on another level. And I mean, it's it's just unbelievable how much gold they had in those stores because um, Indian people, um, you know, if they have savings, they like to buy gold. They don't trust banks. They don't. Up until recently, they didn't have any internet or cell phones to do banking with, and so. Traditionally, if they had extra money, they bought gold, and that was their savings. And especially when someone got married, they, you know, the, they provided gold as a dowry. So, um, you know, that's uh, that's what they had. It's a fascinating place, I have to say, but not easy. Not an easy place to visit. Um, anyone uh, else? So this, yeah, we have one last question. Okay. Uh, it's and the question is, what happened to the Jewish community? What happened to the Jewish community in India? So there were three Jewish communities in India, three completely different ones. The first one is the one that I mentioned, the Cochin community, and the date of arrival of that community is lost in time. So, you know, they, some of them claim they've been there since the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Um, no one really knows how they got there. But what they do know is that Christianity arrived in India very early from Syria um, and went to the same area that the Jews lived in. And so it's very possible that there was a connection there, um, you know, of Jews arriving by ship uh, uh, and... When the Jews did arrive by ship in that area, the king, the local king, gave them permission to settle, gave them land to build a synagogue. And really, they've been there, you know, for many, many centuries, at least at least over a thousand years. So that's the one community. Uh, the much more recent community is called the Baghdadi community, and they arrived with the British. So when the British arrived in the 1800s, the different uh, families of Baghdadi Jews, like the Sassoons and the Kaduris, uh, they arrived with the British. They settled only in the cities and they built up, uh, you know, business communities, banking, trading, stuff like that. When the British left in 1948, they tended to leave as well. And they, you know, went off to London or to Israel or to uh, Canada. Uh, and so that's that community. The community that's left is called the B'nai Israel, which are a, the, a kind of an indigenous Indian community, um, which uh, uh, intermarried with the local Indian people. And so the people from that community kind of look like Indian people in a lot of ways. Um, and um, uh, they are the ones who are the you know, vast majority of Indians today. Uh, if you go to Israel, you will see um, a Cochin community, which is located in Beersheba, where they took apart their synagogue wood by wood, plank by plank, and rebuilt it there. Uh, most fascinating in Beersheba in a moshav. Um, the rest of the, the bulk of the Indian community, the Beit Israel, uh, immigrated to Israel after 1948. 
for economic reasons, because there was never any anti-Semitism in India. So um, they migrated, as I said, for economic reasons and then family reasons. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, are still there. Um, and uh, they have close ties to the country. So they were never kicked out. They were never dispossessed. They could go back and live there if they want. Um, and, um, you know, that's the, uh, that's the, um, you know, that's the story, but, you know, uh, they're part of the general melting pot of Israel, um, in that way. Uh, so do you have any last words or words of wisdom? Any last words? Well, thank you. First of all, thank you very much, Angela, for hosting. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, it's an interesting week. We're going to watch how President Trump gets uh, not impeached again. Um, we are making progress in the uh, vaccination, uh, slow progress. Uh, but that is the answer to our kind of prayers, we'll call it. But remember that production all around the world of different vaccines is ramping up. And so right now they're producing more vaccines than they are injecting vaccines. At some point, all these vaccines will end up on the market. And, you know, hopefully, hopefully by the end of the winter time, we will be able to see you know, uh, sort of the sun on the horizon uh, to end this uh, pandemic in a big way. But, you know, like the flu, this is going to be something that's sort of going to continue on. And we may need to be injected every year with the, the latest uh, update of the vaccine. But I think the worst times are behind us and the numbers are falling in Canada and the U.S. Uh, are, are falling really quite strongly. So I think that's very hopeful. And uh, thanks again for listening. Uh, again, if you've got some ideas or subjects you want me to speak about, let me know. Uh, you could email me and uh, I'll be glad to, um, to uh, take into consideration what you've asked for. So thanks again, everyone, and I'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Coats and Luke podcast today. We launched the podcast and telephone broadcasting service in March 2020. The idea was to get content from Parks and Recreation and the library into your homes using Zoom, telephone, and podcasts. If you enjoy the podcast, please give it a rating and review at Apple Podcasts and share it with your friends. For more information about programs at the library, visit csllibrary.org. For information about the city of Code St. Luke, visit CodeStLuke.org. Have a great day.